This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon. On today's episode, I speak with Ben Ellerby about moving from digital to serverless transformation. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 38. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Ben Ellerby. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Jeremy. So you are the VP of Engineering at Theodo, and you were just recently named an AWS Serverless Hero, so congratulations on that. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what Theodo does? Hi, oh, yeah. So as, as you mentioned, I'm the VP of Engineering for Theodo. Um, we help other companies launch digital products, be that startups, launching their initial MVPs to large companies attempting a digital transformation. And more and more, I'm helping our clients to use serverless, be that through building their initial MVPs, but also training and upskilling their developers. So we're based in London, New York, and Paris. And basically, my role is to help coach our developers and help us find the new technology areas we want to work on. And serverless has been highlighted as the main area we're trying to move towards. And many of our clients are starting to adopt serverless-first architectures. And what's, uh, what's your background? So my background, um, so I've been at Theodore in London since we sort of kicked off a team here about four years ago. Uh, before that, a bit of time at IBM, and before that, uh, studying computer science. Awesome. All right, so you mentioned digital transformation, and we've heard this term a lot, especially over the last couple of years, and, and I think some people think that means you know, sort of moving from on-prem to the cloud or sort of modernizing things. Um, but you've been using this term serverless transformation uh, more recently. Uh, and essentially, this is this idea of sort of going, I guess, the your second move to the cloud, right? So could you kind of explain what you mean by serverless transformation? Yeah, sure. So what you touched on was the digital transformation was that initial move to the cloud, which smaller and larger companies have managed, some with varying degrees of success. I actually helped a company called Junction launch their initial product um, about two years ago, which is um, an AI service that helps large companies plan their migration to the cloud. And that was very much a lift and shift approach. But more recently, uh, if we take the example of Junction, they've had more and more targets going to things like SaaS and FaaS and serverless-first approaches. When I talk about serverless transformation, I'm talking about startups who are launching their initial MVPs and doing that in a serverless-first approach, but also larger companies who are trying to consolidate their developer resource by building serverless-first architectures rather than managing infrastructure. And more than just managing infrastructure, common application things like authentication, moving to that as a service and really leveraging everything as a service to focus their development teams on the core business value that they're adding, the distinct business logic that makes their company who they are. All right. So, I mean, it's more about, you know, that, that lift and shift approach. And, and I think we've talked about this on the show uh, a number of times that trying to just sort of move everything as is from your on-prem into cloud um, is a bit of a fool's errand, right? I mean, you're essentially copying this 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 uh, local environment, but you're not getting the benefits of the cloud environment. Sure, and it has some benefits, like virtualization was an initial move, containerization was another move, and now we're seeing sort of function as a service and other things as a service as sort of a further level of abstraction. The higher that level of abstraction goes, the, the more business value I think you get. Awesome. All right, so you wrote a post called In Defense of the Term Serverless, and nobody seems to want to have this conversation with me anymore <laughs> because I have been very outspoken. I, I had a post a while back called uh, Stop Calling Everything Serverless. 
um, where I tried to essentially define what I thought the term serverless was. Um, and for me, I, I look at it as not a technology, not, you know, a, not a, a managed service, not fast, not some sort of a, uh, a spectrum or a ladder or these other things that I think are really, really interesting ways to try to classify what it is because it's such a hard term to sort of grasp. Um, but I look at it more as sort of this process of using these services that don't require you um, to really have an active involvement in the management of the infrastructure. And, and, and to extend that even further, in some cases where possible, where you don't have to even worry about the scaling or provisioning a cluster of, you know, um, something like, uh, I don't know, a cluster of Elasticsearch or something like that. So I think this is a perfect opportunity because in this community now, we have a lot of forward thinkers. And I think we want to move past this idea of what is serverless. The problem is, is that our community is, for the most part, an echo chamber, right? And mm -hmm. we keep having this conversation every once in a while when somebody, you know, from the edge um, sort of asks us this question. Um, so I'd like to get your definition of serverless um, and, and why you think that term actually is really important. And I think it's a, it's a long answer. So um, I've recently been working on the sort of preview chapter of the book Serverless Transformation at Any Scale. And the first chapter of that deals with what is serverless. It talks about that move from virtualization to containerization and then function as a service. But then it talks about how it's not just function as a service. It's using cloud native technologies as much as possible, which makes it a hard thing. It's not a binary classification between serverless, not serverless. It's a polymorphic space that keeps changing and keeps adapting. I think we can place different services on a spectrum of serverlessness. So Elastic Beanstalk is obviously not serverless, but it's more serverless than manually provisioning your EC2 instances. That goes all the way up to using something like Cognito, which is very little code. It's really the cloud provider providing that logic for you. So I think you can put things on that spectrum, but I don't think that's where the value is. I agree with you there. I think the value is the sort of, I don't like to use the word paradigm shift or mindset shift, but it is, it's a mindset shift to think serverless first to basically, as a, an engineering leader or developer, to focus on trying to defend your team from doing work, trying to offload that to a cloud provider or a third party. It's extremely competitive at the minute to launch an initial product, or if you're in an industry, to keep your costs down. So I think we need to focus on trying to leverage things as a service, which makes development more like combining lots of different things, which then makes you have to be an expert in lots of different things. And as you touched on earlier, this space is, keeps changing and we're in a bit of an echo chamber internally in the serverless sort of group where we keep coming up with different ways of doing things. AWS, for instance, introduces something like Lambda Destinations and we now have three different ways of handling the same problem. I have lots of people asking me, uh, should I use SNS? Should I use SQS? Should I use Kinesis? Should I use EventBridge? I mean, the answer is yes, but it just depends on scale and many different things. So I think at the moment, the, the space is very much in flux and we need to sort of consolidate some best practices, which is going to come with time. Um, but for me, for now, serverless is a good North Star for us to walk towards. And so as a term for me, I, I think it captures the imagination of the place you want to get to. But you're right. I don't think it's particularly useful to try and place everything on a spectrum of serverlessness. But how do you explain that to somebody who literally has no idea what we're talking about? 
Um, you know, you you and I were talking earlier, and you had mentioned you know, you're going through airport security, um, and someone's asking you what you do, and you said cloud computing, and they wanted more details. Um, and you know, so if you threw the term serverless out there, um, sure. maybe they wouldn't even have let you into the country um, <laughs> because I mean, honestly, it, right? It's just this thing where they're like, well, what, what does that mean? Um, and there's all those jokes. There's still servers and serverless and and, and things like that. Um, but there truly is. Um, I, I think a defining characteristic of what that term means, but it's so abstract, right? And and again, all of these other definitions. So how do you explain that to someone who maybe is new to the cloud um, or is trying to understand, you know, th- this role of 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 leveraging third-party services, the managed services, and so forth? And like you said, writing as little code as possible, but probably a lot more configuration. Yeah, it's, it's a challenging area. So at Theodore, as I mentioned, we build digital products, but we do that very hands-on with teams. Our goal is not to stay with a client for a long time. It's to empower their engineers to upskill in the areas, help them build their initial architecture, then let them be empowered to build it further. So I get junior developers, experienced developers, people with little sort of knowledge potentially of the cloud or of serverless. And it starts kind of as this, this book I've talked about is structured. The first chapter is what is serverless? It talks very abstract, then jumps into some detail. But the ending paragraph says something to the effect of keep coming back to this chapter as you progress through the book, because you need to have some, you need to experience some practical examples. We see things like the URL shortener that doesn't actually use Lambda. We see things like image resizing or PDF generation. They're great ways to show people the value of serverless. So generally in training projects around serverless, I I sit with a team and talk to them very abstractly about the different definitions of serverless and what the space means. And they look at me a bit blankly, but I say, trust me, we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. We then take part of their system and migrate that to a serverless first approach. Let's say a PDF generator is a classic example that I like to do. Because you can use Lambda, you can use S3, you can start to use some of the events and you can start to see a lot of value. You can have a system that before required a complex queuing system because PDF generation is quite complex and it takes quite a bit of compute power. But now we can parallelize that across many lambdas. So they start to see, okay, cool, there's scale. Cool, we're leveraging third parties here. We're doing different things. And then you come back to the definition and you see them start to understand a bit more. And then you iterate and go more complicated. You take a microservice with API gateway and you let them start to build out. And I think it's really a learning by doing, but the complex thing with serverless as a space of grown is there's many different ways of doing the same thing. So people are almost scared to start because they're not sure that what the best practice is. Best practices in serverless, are, it's quite a confusing space. I don't know if you've found the same thing around best practices recently. Yeah, and actually Paul Swale uh, wrote a great article uh, lately about you know, basically don't trust best practices, um, you know, especially with a space that's moving so quickly. Uh, it's just really, really hard, I, I think, for, uh, you know, for somebody that's new to this to, to jump in at the level we're at. And I, I think this maybe moves us to maybe beyond best practices and to this idea of complexity. Um, so we know that there are a ton of configuration um, you know, options when you're building serverless applications. And the hello world ones are super easy, right? You write a little bit of code, you throw it into a Lambda function, maybe put it on the other end of an API gateway, maybe get fancy connected to DynamoDB, Maybe you do some SQS, like you said, um, and do some um, some queue processing. For the most part, that is fairly simple. But then let's say that you have a downstream system that is processing off of your queue 
and, and you need to throttle that Lambda function. Right now, all of a sudden, you've got all of these settings in the SQS redrive policy where the visibility timeout has to be six times the, um, you know, the, the function timeout. And you have to do, um, you know, set your retries uh, to be higher so that for the initial burst of, of polling, there's things like that. There's the Lambda destinations, as you mentioned, right? So what happens when your functions fail? Where does that go? How do you monitor that? Where's the retries? Well, you know, what are the retry policies? There are a lot of retry policies. I've done, <laughs> I've just done a presentation on this. There's a lot of retry policies um, and, and a lot of failure modes. So that type of complexity, uh, you know, it's it, coupled with the term, it becomes really hard for people to start. And, and, and maybe that's a, a question that I have here is, is this complexity increasing to a point where it's it's going to make adoption harder? I think so. And I think people inside the service community taking a very sort of purist serverless first approach, which I myself have done. And, you know, I found myself uh, a little while back saying, there's no way I'm possibly letting an RDS inside this architecture. There's no way. It's not a serverless service. It's going to ruin everything. But sometimes you do have to work with existing technologies. And I think if we're throwing on to somebody who's just moving into serverless, the complexity of DynamoDB and all the other services with the retry policies and everything, we're not going to end in a good place, which I think is where your recent talk about adopting non-serverless components in an architecture was very valuable. And you're right, there's still a lot of complexity in different patterns that you yourself has come up with around how we manage retries. But you don't potentially have to have the perfect retry policy from day one. Right. I think making a start making some errors and then learning from those. I think people adopting serverless have to learn with the community. And that's a challenging thing to say, but at the same time, so many other problems have disappeared that your team can spend time looking into retry policies or IAM, all the different services they have to upskill on. Right, yeah, and so, I mean, definitely one of the things too, just speaking of people sort of starting with, with serverless, I, I think you hear sometimes people think, well, serverless is great for spiky workloads, right? Mm -hmm. Because it can handle uh, a large, uh, you know, a large spike um, if uh, you know you've got a Black Friday sale or something like that, as an example. But that if you're not somebody who needs that type of, of scale, um, you know, then you might just be easier spinning up a you know lamp stack or something like that sure. uh, on a virtual machine or using Elastic Beanstalk, as you had mentioned. But I look at serverless. I look at that the ecosystem of tools around it. And it's so much more than scale. I mean, obviously, scale is important. I mean, that's one of the reasons why DynamoDB is so great because, yes, it can handle 60 gajillion transactions per second or whatever it is that, that AWS or that Amazon.com has on Black Friday. But what I think is interesting about approaching serverless as more than just a, a, a mechanism for scale is all of that built-in reliability and resiliency um, that is available you know, to you sort of right out of the box. So, so you see a lot of people, you know, and you're, you're encouraging people to move to serverless, but do you see pushback on that where people are thinking that serverless is just something for these spiky workloads? No, definitely. And I think a lot of the marketing material about serverless talks about its infinite scale, which sounds amazing. But if you have the problem of infinite scale, you also have good things in your business model. Um, so that's one of the reasons the book I mentioned it has the subtitle at any scale mm -hmm. because it is for those large companies with huge workloads attempting a digital migration, moving to event-driven where they have to handle all these complex retries and amazing scale and all the problems that come with that. But it's also for the small startups who 
can't spend their time building generic application functionality like user sign-up with multi-factor authentication and password resets. They need to focus on that actual business value. So serverless as an abstraction helps them focus on that business value, but it also gives you amazing things like the developer experience. If you have a stack that's completely serverless, we have a project at the minute uh, with a client migrating a legacy PHP application to a completely serverless stack. Now, they were very happy to move to serverless. They wouldn't drop the PHP, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's for their CTO to live with. Ah, joking. Um, but actually, PHP has been absolutely fine on the project. But they, because they have a completely serverless stack, they have a CI-CD pipeline that for every pull request spins up a complete stack, runs 300 automated integration tests. And it's not a problem. It runs in six minutes. It's, a, it's an amazing pipeline that they've built. But this also means that they have no out-of-date dependencies in their project because every night a cron job goes and updates the dependencies. And if a test pass, well, it propagates that up. And if the tests fail, then it goes on to Slack and it's a ticket for the next day. The development team are empowered by the flexibility serverless gives them. But yes, that comes at the cost of a bit more complexity when it comes to configuration. All right. And the other thing with complexity too is obviously, um, you know, I've had this discussion with a few people before as well is, you know, what, are, what do we call serverless applications? They're, they're microservices, they're nanoservices, they're these, you know, sort of complex beasts. But, the, but what's great about it is regardless of what you call them is you have a lot of control over configuring each individual function to do something for you, right? So this is the argument that I always make is to say, you know, if you're putting everything in a container, this is the problem with monoliths, right? If you need to scale your PDF processing, um, then that, and that's running on the same machine or the same container as your login process or your, um, your order process or something like that, then when you have a huge batch of PDFs that need to be created, you have to scale up that entire thing. Um, and that means that you're potentially overscaling some of these other things, you're wasting some compute. Um, whereas with serverless, you can say, look, I just have a function that just does PDF processing. And if that has to do 2000 PDFs per minute, then it can, um, but the rest of my system can, can live at whatever scale. But that does create quite a bit of complexity. Um, and it also creates sort of, I guess, a, uh, uh, you know, this, this messaging or this microservice communication um, problem. So uh, how are you sort of telling your clients to address sort of this new, I guess, uh, uh, this, this new volume of messages that need to be passed around in order to coordinate uh, serverless applications? Yeah, so you touched on a few things there. I, I've seen a lot, of, a lot of companies where their code base becomes unsustainable because of the amount of complexity in that monolith. And, you know, the business is a new requirement that analytics wants as events, but then it's two months on the backlog because the monolith is so tightly coupled. Now, at Theodore, we've started recently formalizing code quality internally across projects, and it's sort of a five-point model. And one of those points is sustainability. So keeping the code base sustainable, meaning that it's always adaptable to change. And people will often make the argument, you know, small companies don't need microservices or, you know, microservices are more complexity than they're worth. But when we talk about serverless, the ability for a team, a developer, to be able to spin up into production a Lambda function that does something in, in production on the real production stack is amazing. At Theodore, we've recently started to, and I say recently, it's quite recently from AWS, start to try and adopt EventBridge. So formalizing the events flowing through our system. This means that we have this sort of centralized event bus, events flow through there, and that allows you, you know, your Lambda functions or other services to subscribe to those events and third parties to push events in and this cool developer experience stuff like a fully typed SDK that comes out of the box. Um, but it's also 
a sustainability thing. It allows you to say, okay, well, these things are all just listening to events. If we define our system by events from the business point of view, and we have things listening and doing things with those events, we can add new events later, and it's not going to be a, a problem. It's not going to be a huge friction because it's simply a case of publishing a new event and listening to it. And our existing services can choose to listen to it, but that's optional. Our new service can listen to it or can listen to existing events and do different things. So EventBridge we're really seeing as the future for our serverless architectures. Now, like everyone, we're starting to try and understand the best practices. Uh, Sheen from Lego has done amazing work there. And recently at the serverless meetup in London that I helped run with Anne Stanley, uh, Bob Gregory from Kazoo gave an amazing talk about how his team does event storming to sort of figure out the whole system. And then they use EventBridge on top of that to sort of formalize how those events flow. And he made a very interesting point that everyone's talking about latency and EventBridge can actually have quite a bit of latency, a few minutes or even longer. Um, but what he talked about was, I mean, his business model is uh, giving you a car within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So you have a car, you sell your car to them and they ship you the new car. I think, I don't fully understand their business model. <laughs> but I mean, that's a 24 hour process. Three minutes of latency isn't going to kill you. And that three minutes of latency, okay, I mean, that's a worse, I'm not sure what the worst case is for EventBridge, but something in that ballpark. But EventBridge has given them so much. They have autonomous teams working together to build a product faster than I've seen other companies ever build and building it sustainably. And that sustainability, I think, comes from the fact they're event-driven. And event-driven, you don't need to be event-driven to use serverless. You don't need to use serverless to do event-driven. But everything makes a lot more sense when you do both at the same time. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I am a huge fan of EventBridge. Um, and it's funny you mentioned, mentioned that about sort of best practices and, and, and what those best practices are. The EventBridge team themselves are still trying to understand what those patterns are, like what, what are the customers using it for um, and what sort of makes sense um, for, them to, for them to do that. And so for me, I agree. I, I think that this idea of event-driven with serverless, right, the combination of those two things is huge. And before something like EventBridge came out, I was using SNS. Um, and I was using SNS basically as a standalone sort of event service um, where I would send all my events to this event service. You'd have to take that and then distribute that out and, and create all the subscriptions around that. There's so much more sort of uh, capabilities and, and, uh, and, and options and features that are in EventBridge that I totally agree. I think that is going to be the way, I know that my latest projects, I've used it to sort of standardize uh, how we do messages. So, or how we do messaging between the different applications or the different microservices, I guess if you want to call them that. Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. If you're running modern applications in the cloud like serverless and microservices, Epsigon can add distributed tracing and payload visibility to all of your workloads. It lets you discover, monitor, and alert on issues, plus you can search across every trace, payload, and log so that you can troubleshoot and solve the most complex issues in seconds, all through a single, easy-to-use web-based interface. It's also incredibly simple and fast to set up. There are no agents to install, no manual coding, no tagging, and no training required. It literally takes about three minutes to get this up and running. Then Epsigon will discover and instrument all of your application stacks with no coding changes. Now I've known Nitsen, their CEO, and Ron, their CTO for quite some time now, both of whom have actually been guests on this podcast, and they both bring an incredible amount of expertise to the observability space. The work that they and the team at Epsigon have done is amazing, and they've built a really, really solid product. So if you're looking for an observability tool that you can run on any of your production workloads, contain 
containers, Lambda, Kubernetes, Fargate, or even VMs, definitely check them out at epsagon.com. That's E-P-S-A-G-O-N.com. Um, and so essentially, um, that brings us to this next question. So if EventBridge is this sort of, you know, central component of all future serverless applications that you build, and maybe not maybe not small ones, maybe there's a few small services and, and whatever you want to call those, but certainly for the systems that are more complex, like what's the next step? Like what is there, you know, what's the future going to be? I mean, this is probably a dumb question to ask, but what is serverless going to look like in five years in your opinion? I think it's going to be more abstraction and more consolidation around how to do things. So in five years, it's going to be more abstraction around that configuration. So you're not having to manually configure retry policies out of the box. You're sort of being able to sort of, well, maybe not point and click, but in a very short amount of YAML, be able to have an event-driven architecture. And maybe, maybe that becomes formalized, you know, an event sourcing service rather than just an event bus. Maybe other areas of event-driven become more formalized, but it's always going to be an increase in abstraction. We went from virtualization to containerization to function as a service and other things as a service. Now we're sort of building more event-driven. We can have abstractions at different levels. So they might be abstractions in particular services or abstraction of the whole architecture. Things like uh, the serverless framework have tried serverless component, components. AWS has tried the uh, serverless application registry. Now those things have had varying degrees of success, but built into all of these services, although we're getting a bit more, we seem to have had a spike of complexity recently as so much has been announced and so much has been released. I think we're getting more abstraction. If we take the amazing work you did about uh, integrating RDS with Lambda and you, you built a whole sort of open source project that really helped people with that. Recently, although there's still a need, AWS has abstracted a lot of that with the RDS proxy. They've seen a need from the community and then abstracted that. If we take EventBridge, people were doing CloudWatch custom events kind of before and hacking mm -hmm. it. And then they formalized that and provided a level of abstraction. Now, is that abstraction going to be driven by the cloud provider or by the community? Well, I think it's going to be a bit of both. AWS and other cloud providers are going to add more services, but also increase abstraction as it goes on. And the community is going to build amazing open source projects that increase abstraction. So I think a move to more abstraction, which means less configuration. And configuration is just code. So it means less code to achieve the same business value. So for me, it's more abstraction. But right now, it feels like less abstraction. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, that's one of the things where I started saying this towards the end of last year, where what serverless needs now is some sort of abstraction as a service, something that runs on top of um, on top of you know uh, cloud formation, and even in a sense on top of um, something like the serverless framework or or SAM. Um, and and you're right, serverless components is one of those things. Um, the CDK, the AWS CDK. Uh, has some capabilities around that as well, where you could sort of formalize, maybe call them best practices, uh, and say, look, the standard way that we want to to create this particular type of, of solution or this, this outcome that we're trying to create, that we want to be able to write this in one line or two lines of configuration and say, this is the base use case, this is the outcome, this is what we want it to do. And then if someone says, oh, well, I needed to retry more times or I need to do this, then you can go in, you can start tweaking those defaults. Um, but I totally agree. I think that having a way to encapsulate um, some larger process 
that stitches together all of these individual sort of off-the-shelf products that, that AWS or other cloud providers give to you is going to create and empower people to not only create something that is um, highly usable, right, which doesn't take, you know, uh, the PhD and, or, or, or months of study to figure out how all these different components work, um, but being able to take that and then standardize that across multiple departments in their organization. And that allows you to, um, to, to follow standards, to implement security policies, to uh, implement whatever best practices your organization sees fit and vet those and then allow for the developers to just easily pick that up and go ahead and, and do that. And I know Liberty Mutual has done, has done some things around vetting different AWS products uh, so that their developers go ahead and they could use them, that they already met the compliance they needed and things like that. And now I know they're working on CDK um, uh, CDK patterns that they're going to be able to distribute so that they'll be able to implement these different functions that are these highly, reuse, highly reusable patterns. Um, and again, fully vetted, right? battle tested, um, you know, just things that work right out of the box, um, just making it super easy for them to do. So I, I totally agree with you on that. So just then we both uh, kept using the disclaimer on any cloud as sort of our get out of jail free card, not to seem too tied to AWS. But I think we both agree that AWS are really the, the trailblazer in this space. And that's why we're often using AWS terminology to talk about it. Um, as we talk about abstraction and we talk about standardization of these components that are easily used by our teams and abstraction is going to help us be able to actually build applications, not spend huge amounts of time learning configuration. Do you sort of see that abstraction being across cloud providers or still specific to each cloud provider? Yeah, actually, that's a it's an interesting question because I think that what we're seeing is some of these other clouds sort of now trying to play catch up, right? And I mean, there's no, I don't think there's anybody who would who would argue with the fact that AWS is years ahead um, when it comes to at least pioneering the idea of serverless and things like managed services. They're releasing all these individual services and they're they're releasing all of these components and adding features that make um, you know, that make it easier to build these applications. So, so thinking about other clouds, what worries me is that, and I like diversity. I like the idea of there being another cloud that can do something different. And maybe you can do something a different way in, in cloud A versus cloud B. Um, but I think that actually deepens the divide and makes it harder for people to understand not only what serverless is, but to develop the skills they need to actually build serverless applications. Um, like right now, um, and not to mention Paul Swale again, but Paul Swale just wrote an article um, the other day, he's been very pr prolific lately, um, about, um, about venturing away from AWS and using some other services. Like maybe, you know, maybe uh, Cosmo DB uh, works better for certain things or, or Google Bigtable or something like that. Uh, and, and could you use that in combination with your uh, your current AWS infrastructure, uh, and I mean, obviously, like I, in applications now, we use IBM's um, NLU API for natural language processing. I use Twilio. I use uh, SendGrid. We use Stripe. I mean, we use all these services that are not AWS services. So, really, using these other components uh, is is not um, you know is is not unheard of. Um, and, and that's sort of how I like to envision multi-cloud in the sense where you're using other clouds, but you're not trying to create full parity or some of these other things. Um, but I think sort of to, to go back to your question, the, the biggest problem I see with, 
with trying to standardize things across clouds is that one, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, there's just, it's, it's too diverse. And I mean, the, the functions as a service in general is such a commoditized thing at this point that it doesn't matter. I mean, if you run your functions on Azure, you run your functions on, on Google, um, or you run them on AWS, or you run them on spot instance functions or, or whatever, uh, I don't think that really matters too much in terms of um, things like vendor lock-in. But what I do think matters is if you choose SQS, you know, which is the, the simple queue service in AWS, the best way for you to process events off of that is to use a Lambda function to do that. Um, and if you're using uh, Azure and you're, and you're writing, you know, sort of complex workflows, then um, the, the best thing for you to do is to use logic apps, right? You're not going to use step functions to communicate with uh, Azure functions. So um, I think that what you're going to see is that people are going to have to pick a, a provider and learn that provider deeply, understand everything from IAM to like, again, all these failure modes and all of these little tricks that they can use and all these different levels of abstraction that they can do. Um, I just don't think that you're going to see that translate to multiple cloud providers. And I don't think Kubernetes is the answer either, um, because again, that just handles really the compute part of it, which is highly commoditized. But I don't know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it as well. Well, yeah, I think when people think multi-cloud, they think the you know containerization dream that Docker managed it standardized containers and therefore we can use Kubernetes to run the same container on GCP as on AWS as on Azure as on Alibaba Cloud really any cloud provider um, and that containerization standardization allowed that portability which for some is important so I'm generally of of the sort of view that yes you might find a way to standardize functions as service but there's no way you're going to standardize DynamoDB right. or, you're going to, or NoSQL databases, or how you're going to standardize the events flowing off them and how they interact. I mean, it's just, it's not possible because of the different offerings. And you're right, the diversity is good. It's good that people are doing things in different ways. Cloud providers are doing things in different ways. Um, but when you move to a regulated industry, it becomes a bit more difficult. So in the European Union, there's a regulation that's been passed that banks need to be fault tolerant to at least one cloud provider. Now, this is because banking and the economy are very tightly coupled. And when banks go down, it's not a good thing for the economy. And as there are, let's say, three major cloud providers um, that these sort of scale of banks could work with in Europe, it's very likely that multiple of these cloud providers are on this, multiples of these banks are on the same cloud provider. So if one of these cloud providers were to go down, which many of us think wouldn't happen, but obviously is something to be considered, then multiple banks could go down and the impact could be huge. So being fault tolerant to at least one cloud provider, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you have sort of a hybrid between different cloud providers where some stuff is done in AWS and some stuff is in GCP. It means that you're able to deploy the same infrastructure in both. And I think at the moment, and maybe forever, if you want to do that, I don't think you can fully embrace serverless. Yes, you can use Knative for the compute parts, but I think you're going to be stuck with containerization and classical databases until either standardization happens, which I don't think it does, or there's a, a more advanced way of doing this sort of multi-cloud Right. Yeah, because I, I, I agree with that. I mean, you can't be, uh, this is this lowest common denominator argument, right? If I'm going to try to choose something that I can run in multiple clouds, um, how can I truly be cloud native if I'm using something that is going to, uh, is, is going to, you know, be not built for the cloud? Um, maybe that's the wrong way to say it. But I mean, that's, I think that's where you have that, that huge amount of Capabilities. If, if you're if you're on GCP and you're using um, something like Firestore, right? Like that is a 
incredibly powerful service that does all kinds of really great things. And if you said, well, I don't want to just be locked into Firestore, so I'm going to go ahead and just do a, you know, a uh, installed MySQL database or something like that, you're not going to get the features that you get from something like Firestore. Um, you're not going to get the features um, in some other, you know, you're not going to get the scale features, let's say, of DynamoDB and some of the capabilities that that has if you just say, well, we're going to install, you know, on, on some VMs, we're going to install a MongoDB or we're going to install a Cassandra ring or something like that. So I totally agree with you. I think that in order for you to really embrace the cloud, that you have to basically pick a provider. And, and maybe if you've got the resources, go great, pick multiple providers, figure out how to build your app cloud native on AWS, figure out how to build it cloud native in Alibaba or Tencent or whatever you're doing. Um, but you have to, if you want to embrace that true cloud native, I, I think uh, mindset, if we want to call it that, you have to build, you have to choose the tools that are built to be cloud native. And then put those teams in different buildings and don't let them talk to each other. Exactly, exactly. Sure. But yeah, that's a huge cost. Um, but I guess if, if, if there's that hard constraint coming from a regulation point of view, maybe that's the sort of cost that has to be embraced. Um, or people don't adopt the cloud native architectures. And comparing which would be a higher cost is uh, probably too complex to do. <laughs> right. That's probably true. But I mean, the other thing to think of, too, is I think if you're developing for multiple clouds, um, and, uh, and I have I've not seen any teams directly doing this, but I would I would certainly think that you're you're going to need people who are experts on AWS and people who are experts on Azure, for example, if you truly wanted to do those separate things. Because even if you're installing, you know, Kubernetes and you're running Knative and you're doing some of these other things, um, there are very specific services on each one of these cloud providers that handle different things that kind of deal with them differently. Um, there's different security requirements, there's different protocols, things like that that you have to learn. Um, so I do think that that if you truly wanted to take that multi-cloud approach, and I, I hate the word multi-cloud, I think it's a terrible idea in many cases, but I get what you're saying on the regulation sure. stuff, um, that, uh, yeah, I think you, you, just, you just have to have a really big team um, in order to do that. And we've, um, not even, we've not even touched on the data duplication. Right. Yeah, that's another. Yeah, I mean, and, huge. Yeah, that's a really concern. good point. So yeah, so so talk about that. I mean, the data, the the data piece of it, right? I mean, this goes to this vendor lock-in thing, right? And, and people always get concerned of, um, well, if I if I choose uh, AWS Lambda functions, then I'm locked into AWS. Um, and I would argue, uh, as you just mentioned, that it's really not about choosing the computer, even choosing some of these other managed services. There are duplications for some of these that you could potentially port over. But as soon as you start putting a bunch of data somewhere, mm -hmm. you're kind of locked in from a data aspect. Especially when you get to the scale that vendor lock-in is a concern, and that's an immense scale or a regulation requirement which comes at large scale. Then you've, the volumes of data we're talking about migrating, potentially between different storage mechanisms, it's, yeah, I'm not sure it's always going to be possible. And that's, that's where it becomes very complicated. And whether you do that, you know, incrementally or not, I think for many, my view is you need to embrace vendor lock-in and embracing vendor lock-in is called cloud native. They're just different names for the same thing, depending on your view, on your mindset towards cloud providers. Um, but you need to embrace vendor lock-in. And if the day comes where Amazon's going to triple its costs or, or whatever the fear is, um, because for many, the availability that Amazon provides is better than the availability they'll be able to maintain internally, obviously. Um, 
the day that that comes, it's probably going to be cheaper to try and move then rather than try and always have this ability to move. Maintaining an ability to move cloud provider for years and it might never happen is not the right move. I would, when that day comes, figure out how to move. All right. Well, I totally, totally agree with that. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, listen, Ben, thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your um, serverless knowledge with the community. And congratulations again for, for the AWS Serverless Hero um, uh, distinction. Um, so if our listeners want to find out more about you, how do they do that? Yeah, so I'm running a few different initiatives under this sort of brand of serverless transformation. So there's a serverless transformation medium. Feel free to check that out. This same podcast recording is going to go out on the Service Transformation podcast, which you'll find on Spotify and other good places to find podcasts. And there's also uh, a few open source projects under the Theodo GitHub. And if anyone wants to reach out with any questions, I'm always very available on Twitter. And that's LRB Ben. Yeah, that's LRB Ben. Awesome. All right. I will get all that into the show notes. Thanks again. Amazing. Thanks, Jeremy. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Ben Ellerby for being my guest this week. I also want to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 38. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. <laughs>